Welcome to Anorak, the happy podcast for kids. We have questions, we have experts to answer them, and we also have some jokes. What has hands but can't clap? A clock. we interview a fashion designer and we go back in time to find out what people wore a long time ago. Hi, I'm Katie Erie. I'm based in East London and I'm a fashion designer. I became a fashion designer officially since 2008 I did my degree in Leicester and then I did my master's at the Royal College of Art. And I think it was then after the master's that I really kind of excelled. And the first person to shoot my clothes was Mara Testino on Kate Moss for a September issue of Vogue. So it was thrust into the fashion limelight super quick. I think even within a month of leaving university, I did hats for all of the um, Selfridges windows and then I was speaking to Nicola Formichetti, who was Lady Gaga's stylist at the time. And he owned, part owns Days Group, the magazine. And he basically just said, oh, do you want to start showing at Fashion Week? So, of course, I said yes. I had no money. <laughs> I was living in a warehouse, but it was the most fun I've ever had. Those first three years were fast paced and really stressful, but so exciting. When I was about eight years old, I really did love fashion already, but I didn't know what Gucci was. I didn't know Louis Vuitton or Yves Saint Laurent or anything like that because I grew up in quite a poor part of town, this little place in Stevenage, council estate. And I feel as though my obsession with all things beautiful and glamorous came from me maybe feeling like somebody like me didn't deserve or it was so out of reach. And that's what motivated me, I think, all through my career was I shouldn't have this. So I'm going to work hard and make sure that I'm part of this. When I was eight, I wanted some tartan hot pants. and I wanted to wear them with some mad tights and I don't know, whatever, maybe a velvet blazer or something like that. It was all very like the movie Clueless because we couldn't afford them. She made them for me and I was so excited to wear them to school. I remember feeling so excited and so optimistic about going to school that day because I felt really cool. And then as soon as I got to school, people were like, oh my God, oh my God, what are they? What are they? What are you wearing? And I was really shocked because... (laughs) Because I thought I looked fantastic, (laughs) but apparently I looked a bit odd. And it was quite funny because actually about six months later, they came into fashion. So I was always on trend. (laughs) So yeah, if not a bit odd, but that's what made me who I was. I was always eccentric. Alfie, 10, England, but I was born in Singapore and I moved to England three months ago. Where do you get your inspiration from? I pick themes based on something that I know nothing about. So, for example, 
I picked a book called Master and Margarita for my master's. And the reason I picked it is because I didn't know anything about Russian literature. And I feel like if I read a book and if you read a book, we're both going to have completely different ideas as to what the characters look like, what they wear, who they really are. We fill in a lot of gaps in our minds. So I always feel that if I start a collection with a book, it's going to be a completely original idea that only I can come up with. Because if 10 fashion designers read the same book, it's quite likely we're all going to have a completely different idea because you can't get inside anybody else's mind to see the colours or the sounds or what it is that they're going to pick from it. It's all going to be completely new. And I like to immerse myself in something that I don't know anything about. And I feel like I'm learning and that's quite exciting and that can make it fun. My first collection for Fashion Week, I actually based it on George Orwell's Animal Farm. The Royal College of Art really opened me up. It's a master's. I loved that I got to university thinking that I knew everything already because I've just done my degree. And I realised very quickly within one lesson that I knew nothing. And I loved that because I really enjoy learning something new. And if you think you know everything and you realise you don't know anything, I get excited and think, I'm going to be an absolute expert (laughs) by the end of this. It's like having a doctorate in fashion or something. What's your favourite style? My aesthetic is head-to-toe print, which you won't know because you weren't born. But when I started doing that in 2009 or 10, it was really new to do everything from the hat, jacket, Trousers, shoes, accessories, everything was full print. So I became known for print more than design, I would say. And I did menswear, believe it or not, for 10 years. But my sort of design ranges from menswear through to swimwear, lingerie, right through to doing big fluffy shearling coats for the whole Kardashian family... So I've got a lot of strings to my bow, but mostly my aesthetic is bright colours, bright, fluffy textures, and the print itself sort of acts like a texture as well. So it's it's always super fun, and uh, that's how I kept going, actually. I always said, if it's not fun, I won't do it anymore. The reason that I've taken the maximalist stance actually came from when I was at the Royal College of Art, I used to design everything in black. And my tutor, every time I'd have a tutorial, it would be more like a counselling session. And he said, why do you keep designing in black? I can see that you're a colour person because you're wearing head to toe vibrant colours. Even my makeup was absolutely bonkers. And I said, oh, I'm scared what people will think. And he said, why do you care what people think? And it's such a simple thing that it just made me realise that what was I holding back for? And as soon as I let go, that's what opened the floodgates. And not only that, so that's the colour side, but then there's the other more opulent side. And then went on doing full head-to-toe crystal military-looking outfits. So that became my 
signature, I suppose. Vivid colours, lots of print and extreme fun. And it came from those two things, not worrying about what people think. And if I really like something, just do it. <laughs> My name is Lenny Zanella. I am eight years old and I live in London. What clothing do you design? I design a wide range of clothing, actually. So from menswear through to swimwear, lingerie, pyjamas, you name it. I've probably designed it, but I've made a career out of menswear and swimwear. Is it easy being a fashion designer? I would say it's easy to become a face in fashion. All you need to do really is attend all the parties and wear wild clothing and eventually you make enough friends and you get to know the photographers and they can take your photos every single event. But the hard bit is it when you're too busy to go to these events now and you have to make money so that you can keep doing these shows. And that's when it gets very hard because you have to sell. So that means the product you design, it doesn't even have to be fashionable. It just has to be commercially viable, which means it's something that's going to be worn by everybody. And that is very, very difficult. And if we all knew the answer to that, we'd all be very successful. <laughs> it's easy for me to design after I've had a break. So after a fashion show, you feel quite drained because it's been a long, hard, let's say 10 weeks lead up to the show. And every time I've done a fashion show, I go through this emotional roller coaster. And I think to myself, oh my God, I've got no ideas. I'm never going to be able to do another show. And it's the same every single time. So then I go on holiday for maybe three days, go somewhere with my mum or something, just for three days to try and switch off. And it's only when I sit down on the beach, look out at the sea, that the ideas start coming to me. And I think, hmm, I'm going to read this particular book and I feel like that's going to really set off some ideas and then I'll get really into it. So creatively, when I come back from a break, I'm feeling more energised again and ready to start designing again. And it's a difficult one because some days you feel really happy and ready to design and other days not so happy and ready to design. <laughs> but the first part is the hardest. So my favourite bit about designing is after you've got your subjects, your reasons that you're doing it, going out, looking at fabrics, looking at feathers or textures, crystals, whatever it is that I'm going to be designing with, I like to get a tiny piece of them, collect them all and then have them all around me on the table, mood board. So I like to surround myself with everything. And then I really feel like, oh, I'm really getting somewhere. <laughs> and that is quite fun. How do you design fashion? I like to design things that I want to wear. And I have to predict the future. That is how you design fashion. You have to sit down and think, what's going to be fashionable in two years? <laughs> So when I had my own brand, I would only have to think one year ahead, which can be quite difficult. It would be difficult for a lot of people. When you work for big companies, you were designing two years ahead. So 
that's when you're a super genius and you can see through the future. I think I've been quite lucky in that I've got to work with big famous people like Kanye West because when I go to his studio, I feel as though the subjects that he's working on or the projects that he has on are so futuristic that it's almost five years in advance. So even if I work for him for one week, I come home and think, well, I know what's happening for the next five years. (laughs) And the key to knowing what's coming up, what's fashionable, is just to be very aware of all trends. We're in music, fashion, art, graphics, everything creative. You have to keep an eye on these little moving parts and the people behind it. And I'm always looking, what are they wearing? How are they wearing it? How do I think it's going to evolve? That's how you design fashion. It's not easy. Do you get inspired by fashion magazine or is it something else? I do get inspired with fashion magazines sometimes, but you have to be careful because inspiration can then transpire into borrowing ideas. And sometimes you can do it without even realising. And a lot of designers have done that in the past and then got themselves into trouble. Um, So the best thing to do is not to look at fashion when designing fashion. Because first of all, we are always being challenged to design something totally new. And in order to do that, you cannot look at what already exists. So I might look at a 1970s furniture book instead. And it could be the architectural lines that inspire a silhouette or something. It's always best not to look at fashion. But as I say, sometimes you can get carried away. I love magazines, but I try not to look at it for my work, more for just for me. My name's Amber Butchart. I live right next to the sea in the UK, in England, and I'm a fashion historian and curator. And that means that I spend all of my time thinking about the clothes that we wore in the past and what that can teach us about history. When I was little, I'd never heard of a fashion historian. I'm not sure if it really existed as a sort of full job title. So it was something I kind of found my way into as I got older and older. Anybody interested in becoming a fashion historian, there are now lots of university courses you can take. You can get work experience in museums, working in dress collections, things like that. I actually started out working for a vintage clothing company. When I grew up, I always loved shopping for secondhand clothes. And I would shop with my mum in charity shops, at jumble sales, car boot sales, all of those kinds of things. So I always loved old clothes and shopping for old clothes. So when I finished university, it made sense to me to get a job at my favourite clothes shop, which was a vintage clothing shop. And I quite quickly became the buyer for the store. Because I'm quite geeky and quite nerdy, I would spend my lunch breaks reading books about the clothing that we were selling, reading about the history behind it, especially the sort of social history and how that impacted what we were wearing at different points. And so through that research, I became the buyer for the store and I got to travel around the world quite a bit, teaching the people that were picking the clothes for us. 
So that was really my entry into what I do now. Hello, I am Tova. I'm six years old and I live in the United States. How did people dye clothes in the past? So the history of clothes dyeing is really quite interesting. The way that we dye our clothes now, the majority of our clothes are dyed through chemical means. This means of dyeing our clothing through chemicals was discovered in the 1850s. So we have to go back about, what is that, 170 years or so to get to the origins of how we dye our clothes now. Now, actually, this was discovered by accident. There was a chemist called William Henry Perkin, and he was doing some experiments in his lab. He was trying to find a cure for malaria. That's what he was trying to do. Now, as part of this process, he was working with things like coal tar, things which now are, you know, they're not very good for the environment. We're trying to move away from these kinds of methods. But he was doing all of these experiments, and he realized that one of the byproducts of one of these experiments stained everything it touched a really bright purple colour. So he forgot trying to find a cure for malaria and he instead opened a dye works and made his fortune running this dye works. It's interesting that purple was the first sort of chemically created, artificially created dye that we get because before that moment in the 1850s, to create a really vibrant purple colour was actually very, very difficult. The brightest purple was created by using the mucus glands of a certain variety of sea snail. So to create this very bright purple colour, you had to find thousands and thousands and thousands of this particular type of sea snail. You had to cut out their mucus glands. You had to dry their mucus glands and boil them. And then through that process, you could create this colour that would create this very bright purple. Now, it needed tens of thousands of these glands to dye a relatively small piece of cloth. So it was very, very, very expensive. It was also very labour intensive as well, really took an awful lot of work to get this. So in the past, purple as a colour became associated with the wealthiest people in society, with kings, queens, emperors, even some countries had laws against people wearing purple unless they were a king or a queen or an emperor. That's how visually special purple was, this very, very bright purple. That's just one colour. But before this point in the 1850s where we start seeing these artificial dyes created, every dye was created by something from the natural world. So whether it was this extreme with the sea snails or whether it was some of the plants that we still have around us today, potentially growing wild, then it was through gathering those. Certain types of insects as well might give a particularly bright red, but it was all through plants or animals. One other thing that was quite important for the history of dyeing is you always need a mordant. Now, mordant is a material that will make the colour really stick to the cloth that you're dyeing. And it will also make it brighter as well. In the past, as you were using various different plants to create these colours, like there's a plant called weld, for example, that creates a yellow dye. Now, the mordant that was often used to enhance this yellow colour and to make it stick was actually stale urine. (laughs) So dyeing in the past 
was a particularly gruesome process, to be honest. It was not for the faint-hearted, whether you're using these dried mucus glands of sea snails or whether you're using stale urine that had to be a minimum of three weeks old. So you not only have to keep your urine, but you have to measure how long you're keeping it for. Uh, You know, you can imagine the kinds of smells that were involved in dyeing cloth. It was one of the industries that you would always find on the outskirts of towns because of these smells, because it was quite a disgusting trade to work in. And it would have all of these kind of quite unpleasant byproducts as well. So it's a very interesting and quite gruesome history. There's a plant called woad, which creates blue. It has parts of sort of indigo dye within it. So when it's sort of broken down, when it's soaked and when it's used as dye, it creates a blue colour. As well as plants, some types of animals could also be used to create dyes. And predominantly, we see this with insects. For example, there's a beetle called the cochineal beetle. And this comes from Central and South America. And when this was crushed and processed and used, it would create a very, very vibrant red, much brighter than the types of red that could be created in Britain with just using plants and things like that. So this was a very highly valued colour. And it was used not only to dye clothes, but it could also be used in paint as well to, you know, if you're mixing up oil paint to create a red that will last for a long time. That's another crucial thing when we're thinking about the history of dyeing is that we're used to our clothes not fading. If you buy an item of clothing and it's a particular colour, you expect it really to stay that colour. That wasn't the case in the past. Clothes would fade very, very easily in the sun, particular types of weather. It could very easily lose its vibrancy. So finding a colour that was very long lasting, that was very bright and stayed bright over a period of time was really the sort of holy grail. And it's why the Murex sea snail in that particular purple became so expensive and so well known because it retained its colour, it retained its brightness. And that was something that the cochineal dye also did as well. So these very, very bright, vibrant colours, the purple or the reds, were mainly worn by the richest people in society. But that's not to say that poorer people didn't have some kind of variety in terms of the colours that they were wearing. Dye like weld or woad was relatively easy to come by. If you mix those two colours, of course, if you mix yellow and blue, you get green. It does take a lot more dyeing, a lot more sort of dips in the dye bath, but you can make green. But also what we see is that natural colours were used as well, especially wool. Wool was incredibly important in the history of Britain. It was a very important economic commodity. We would sell wool to Europe and it was a very important source of wealth for us as a country. Wool, of course, comes from sheep and you get different sheep breeds which have different colours of wool. So that could create whole ranges from white really through to black and you've got a whole range of greys and browns in the middle. So not only does that mean you can create fabric in those colours, but it also means you can create checks and or potentially tartans in Scotland using different colours of sheep's wool as well. Some of it may be dyed, some of it may be natural, So there's a real human inclination to decorate the body and to wear colourful things and to make life colourful. And so we see this at all levels of society. Did men ever wear skirts in the past? The short answer to that is yes. 
Men certainly did wear skirts in the past, but also it's important to think about where we are in the world when we're thinking about this. In the Western world, you know, in Europe, in America, in places like this, we have this long-standing gender distinction in clothing that we still see on a lot of toilet doors. Skirt is the symbol for women and trousers is the symbol for men. This has quite a long history in the West, but it's certainly not the case all over the world. If we think about places like China or Japan or Indonesia, other places, then it was perfectly normal for women to wear what we would call trousers and was, could be perfectly normal for men to wear what we would call skirts. So firstly, this is a geographic issue. And secondly, if we think about the history of Western clothing, then yes, we absolutely see men in what we would today call skirts. And we can see this in a few different places. And we see it especially in the medieval era. So if you've ever seen any medieval illuminations, the beautiful drawings that you get in these old handwritten books and tomes, then a lot of them, the men will be wearing drapery, essentially. They're wearing fabric that has not been tailored in the way that we think of clothing being tailored today. It won't have been shaped into specific legs or maybe even specific arm shapes, but it's sort of this draped cloth that we see, which is essentially, I suppose, dresses. We might think of them as dresses. We also see this on something like the Bayeux Tapestry, the Bayeux Tapestry was created probably in the 11th century after the Battle of Hastings when the English and the French fought and the French won. And this whole battle is depicted on this big embroidery. Now it's called the Bayeux Tapestry, but it's not actually a tapestry. It's actually an embroidery. But we see different soldiers on this. We see the French and the English soldiers. And it's quite interesting because they're depicted differently we see differences in their clothing and differences in their grooming. The English, for example, have moustaches, while the Normans are clean-shaven. This could reflect contemporary styles, or it could just be a kind of artistic conceit to show the two opposing sides. And if you were to imagine equally like a football match or something, you'd need to know which team was which. So it's a similar sort of thing. But also we see a bit of difference in the clothing. Like the English on the Bayeux Tapestry generally wear tunics, while the Normans wear what we would today call culottes. So two separate bits, we call this bifurcation, two separate bits for the two separate legs, essentially. But the English are wearing tunics, which we could today potentially call skirts, or we could call them dresses. And they're also worn with hose as well, which is tight fitting to the legs. Now we have the word hosiery that we use to mean tights or stockings. And, and that's where that word comes from, is from hose. So this is fitted to the legs, probably made of wool, could be really brightly coloured. At points in the sort of 12th or 13th century, you could even see men wearing a tunic and wearing this hose, which is just like tights. And the two legs might be two different colours. It's a pretty cool look. So certainly in the past, we see men wearing skirts. What's interesting if we think about it now is that we see more and more men wearing skirts now as well. People are starting to really challenge this very strict gender binary that we have in clothing. You have a lot of fashion designers really challenging it, saying, why do women and men have to wear different types of clothing? We have people thinking about gender in different ways. We have people expressing gender in different ways. Men like Harry Styles are often wearing skirts and dresses now in the pages of Vogue. And I'm all for it. 
What is the silliest piece of clothing that you have ever seen? I think probably the silliest piece of clothing I've ever seen is from the medieval era. And it's a particular type of shoe worn by men. And this type of shoe was called the poulain, or it was sometimes called the Krakow shoe. And it was a shoe with a very, very, very long pointed front, like so long that it would have made it really, really difficult to walk in it. And the thing that makes this even sillier is that quite often the men wearing these shoes would also have been wearing hose and might have been wearing some kind of tunic. So you've got these very thin legs covered in what we would today call tights and then these really long pointed shoes. Some of these shoes still exist. You can actually see some of these real shoes in real life in various museums around the world. A lot of chroniclers at the time actually wrote about these shoes. So you get various points in history where the people that were writing things down, often members of the clergy in Britain, would be quite critical of particular fashions that they felt were ridiculous. You see this in, in England, you see it in France as well. For example, there was a late 14th century French poet uh, who wrote about these shoes. And he wrote, Not Adam, Noah, or our forefathers of antiquity were shod by the kind of shoes you will find today, which have an L-long beak in front of them, fitted with a whale's tooth. Walking backwards like lobsters, they show their backsides and hide their faces. <laughs> now, I particularly love that because you just get such a great description of this ridiculously long shoe. He talks about it being fitted with a whale's tooth. Now, that could mean that there was a section of baleen, of like of whale's bone put into the front of the shoe to make it stiff, to make it really stand out like that. And he says that they had to walk backwards. Like this shoe is so long that you can't actually walk forwards. You have to walk backwards as you're going into rooms, as you're going about your day. It's absolutely a hilarious image. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. And now a message for the grown-ups. Be sure to stay up to date with our happy podcast series by subscribing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you like it that much, feel free to leave a review. Follow our happy news by visiting anorakmagazine.com where you can become a patron and register your child to be a little podcaster for our next series. Oh, and we are on Instagram too at anorakmag. See you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.